This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. The chance of a coup or self-coup or reimposition of military rule is always going to be on the table. It's always going to be one of the options that Prior is going to be looking at. I mean, there's a reason why Thailand is known as the land of coups. That and more on this edition of Asia in Focus. Today I'm speaking with Harrison Chang, our senior analyst for Southeast Asia, about Thailand, an economy that will shrink at least 8% this year, a government that doesn't seem to be able to find its way out of difficult, challenging political situation with almost daily protests in the capital of Bangkok, and is it really a great place to put new foreign investment? Harrison, Thailand's been convulsed by demonstrations, many of them involving students, over the last couple of months. Some of those demonstrations have called for pretty radical changes in Thailand's constitutional structure, including the disposition of the monarchy and for a new government. Maybe you can give us some insight into where we think this is all going and does it matter? Yeah, thanks, Dean. So I think it's essentially what we have right now is a protest movement, not quite like anything we've had before in Thailand's turbulent 15 to 20 years. Previously, we were witness to, you know, the red and yellow demonstrations uh, in Bangkok, uh, lasting from sometime around 2005 all the way to the 2014 coup. Right now, what we have is a very different animal. It's driven mainly by students, university students, pro-democracy activists who have long been unhappy with the military and as well as the pro-military government that took power after the 2019 general elections. There's a lot of obvious uh, discontent going on. Much of it is political. Much of it is due to what is perceived as political repression and the cracking down on pro-democracy critics of the government and of the military. But there's also this economic frustration that, uh, that is not unique to Thailand at this point because of COVID-19, but that has only allowed the student-led movement to gather more support from other groups that have traditionally not supported the pro-democracy movement. So we're talking about some of the middle classes who reside in Bangkok, who have been more well-to-do, who have not really sided with uh, Thaksin or Poor Thai or the usual political parties that sit opposite the political elite in Bangkok. So where do we think all this is going? What's remarkable about the latest protest is that it's been taking place amid COVID-19. There have been protests that have been going on almost daily since mid-July. And what we really think is going to happen is that this movement does have quite a bit of momentum going on. Protests over the weekend also showed that they can draw the numbers. There were about 30,000 people on Saturday itself. It's the largest such rally we've seen in Thailand since the 2014 coup. And the protesters have planned for another rally this Thursday. They have planned for another large one in October. And all this is really meant to put pressure on the government and military to come up with real reforms. They do want the pro-military government to stand down. They do want changes to the constitution to make electoral competition fairer. They probably would like another general election to take place because the previous one was seen as discriminatory against the political parties that did not like the military. So we can expect, at least on the security front, more protests down the road. We don't think the security situation is going to deteriorate rapidly into widespread violence as we've seen in other places. 
because most of the means that have been employed by the protest groups have been quite peaceful. And on top of that, security forces have been quite restrained, even in relation to the 30,000 that we saw this Saturday. But we do think that Prime Minister Prayut Chanocha's hold on power is getting more fragile by the day, partly also because of the economic problems that the country is facing. Previously, I think the middle classes were quite happy to support him. But now, when they don't see a real economic plan, they are now throwing their support behind the, the, the protests. And that is quite worrying. So that's a great point. The current government sometimes strikes me as the, the gang that couldn't shoot straight. They've had a couple of go-rounds now with different cabinets. We know it's still largely a military government with the balance of technocrats. You had a finance minister that lasted you know, less than a month and was gone. They seem to have a real challenge with, as you said, particularly the economic side, economic planning and continuity and sustainability in that space, maybe with the exception of the EEC, which I know we should talk about. But recently there's been, you know, chatter about will there be another coup, i.e. would the prime minister, since most of the people at the top are ex-military people, would they stage what we would call a self-coup? How likely is that? And how likely do you think they're able to get out of this economic predicament that they're in since they kind of have the plans, but they haven't been able to execute, it seems like? Well, I mean, I think the chance of a coup or self-coup or reimposition of military rule is always going to be on the table. It's always going to be one of the options that Prior is going to be looking at. I mean, there's a reason why Thailand is known as the land of coups. You know, counting successful and unsuccessful coups, there have been over 20 in the past century. The last one was only in 2014. And the important thing to know is that Apirat Konsampong, who is the outgoing army chief, I mean, as of 1st October, Apira and his successor, Narong Pan, who is coming in on 1st October, they are both, you know, in the same ideological mode as Prayut. They still believe that the military should have the preeminent role in politics and in government. And so the temptation to use the coup option as a way to reset the political landscape is always going to be there. Even though publicly they are saying that, you know, a coup will never take place because it will never be acceptable to the public and to the youth. I mean, that's what you would say if you were planning a coup anyway, because none of us saw the last previous coups coming. And the truth is that they might not call it a coup, but they might do something like a coup. So installation of emergency rule for, you know, indefinite periods of time, like they're doing with the state of emergency now and using the COVID-19 situation as a justification or rather as a pretext, as some might look at it. So it would be an informal coup, even if they were not to call it a coup. They might not roll in the military tanks and, you know, occupy Bangkok for weeks, but they will surely have an interim government. They will surely have another another take at the constitution probably to ensure that the military continues to stay in power. So I think that is still that old playbook that they are unwilling to let go of. And you can see it by the way, you know, that they have stacked the Senate and, and other institutions with the royalists and the hardliners. The influential quarter of the Bangkok elite will continue to hold sway in this kind of discussions about how to exercise power. As for the economic side, I would say that it's not extremely clear that they do have the plans, even, you know, let alone the, the capability to execute it. I think the fact is that the reason that they're in this situation now is that Prayut has been unable to isolate the technocrats from petty infighting in the ruling coalition. And the technocrats, even though they have the experience and the capability to do the job, they are just so frustrated by the fact that political veterans left and right are basically interfering with their autonomy to come up with economic policies and measures. And this is what led to former finance minister Priti Daochai, which you mentioned, leaving the job just less than a month in. And Prior is going to have a hard time trying to convince credible figures from the private sector to join his economic team. 
And right now, his economic team is very much decimated. He still doesn't have a finance minister after Pretty left the 2nd of September. So imagine Thailand facing 8 to 9% contraction in 2020 has gone on without a finance minister for close to three weeks now. That will not be reassuring to investors. So let's have a counterbalance to that. I think one of the things that we always talk about or recently I talked about with Thailand is this Eastern Economic Corridor project, which they're kind of you know putting a lot of chips on to not only take the economy to the next level, but also restore vitality and generate jobs and bring in foreign investment and all of those things. And it's some of these projects, particularly infrastructure projects, airports, high-speed train, the port, I mean, these are multi, multi multi-billion dollar projects. They've been awarded, at least on paper. So where do we see that right now? And do we actually see it going to deliver, maybe infrastructure aside, do we think it's actually going to deliver what they promise it will? Well, I think that the infrastructure projects are still going to go ahead under this current government. And even if there is a political change, the Eastern Economic Corridor and other mega infrastructure projects such as the high-speed rail, as well as the redevelopment of Utapau Airport, these are going to go ahead because of the government's strong commitment to building up the logistics infrastructure to attract investments particularly the relocation of manufacturing facilities from China to Southeast Asia. And Thailand is really trying to position itself as that logistics hub, building for high-tech manufacturing sectors under the Thailand 4.0 strategy. So they are making progress and they are making progress on the construction as we speak. The government will continue to roll out you know, very attractive investment incentives to get the foreign investor to Thailand. And that's very much borne out by the fact that you know the EEC has continued to do this even after the former economic chief Somkit left in July, uh, even after Pridi stepped down earlier this month. You know the board of investment, the finance ministry, the bureaucrats, they will continue to drive this incentive. The question though is when you look at Thailand, you have to look at, at a comparative perspective across various factors uh, that, that influence investment uh, attractiveness. And this is really, you know, looking at Thailand in relation to Vietnam, in relation to Malaysia. Where do these factors lie? You know, when you benchmark them, which one is more attractive? You know, compared to Vietnam, which is, you know, kind of like the, the, go- the golden boy of Southeast Asia when it comes to attracting investments due to, you know, the supply chain uh, issues concerning the US-China trade tensions. Vietnam has been the go-to, but we've also, you know, received, you know, anecdotal evidence that Vietnam is becoming crowded. Uh, so people might go to Thailand where the logistics infrastructure is more advanced and actually logistics costs are cheaper. So there are pros and cons when you look at Thailand and you have to look at it in relation to the other markets in this region. I think that's a good point. And conveniently, you're not only our lead analyst for Thailand, but also for Malaysia. And I think of these two kind of in some similar respects in that they both have bad politics at the top right now. They have decent infrastructure, as you pointed out. They have a pretty capable bureaucratic elite. They have a long history wooing foreign investors, at least in certain sectors. They're protectionist in other sectors, but they're kind of stuck in the middle income trap. And I think my take is they're kind of struggling of how do we get out of that? They're not the only ones in that space. Of course, China's also in that space, so they claim to be. But what do you think for Thailand going forward? If we look at the next one, two, three, five years, is it going to kind of stumble along, for lack of a better word, not fall off a cliff, but also not kind of maybe fulfill its full potential, would that be a good synopsis or is that too generous? I think the more likely scenario is that Thailand will continue to stumble along. There needs to be a fundamental rethink about the distribution of political power in Bangkok. Uh, If the military 
continue to believe that they need to have the upper hand and they need to dominate appointments in cabinet. And they are more interested in ensuring that the various factions are happy instead of, you know, focusing and working together as a team on economic recovery to resolve some of the fundamental issues like, you know, education and labor. If they are unable to look past that short-term political demands, then it's very hard for them to break out of the current mode that they're in. And Bangkok will continue to be the site of contestation between the pro-democracy groups and the military and the conservative establishment, on the other hand. And I mean, judging from what we saw on the pro- in the protests on Saturday and Sunday, where the protesters that like you mentioned touched on the role of the monarchy, to a degree that has never been seen in Bangkok, at least so publicly, on such a grand scale, I think tells us that the conversation going forward is only going to get more heated. And it's going to touch on those sacred cows that, you know, previously people were not, are not willing to do. And so I think that contestation will continue. The pro-democracy group, I think, importantly, has shifted away from being labeled as toxic label or being associated with everything to do with toxic. They are by themselves credibly a force. They do not owe their support to Thaksin and his electoral political machine. And so it makes it actually easier for these protesters and these student groups to draw support from other middle-class voters who previously were did not want to have anything to do with Thaksin because of that brand of politics that he represented. So I think that is my forecast for Thailand. I think economically, they will continue to stumble. They will continue to lag behind many of their Southeast Asian peers, particularly Vietnam, of course. And so where they have the edge, I think, is in the logistics and infrastructure. That's where they can sort of differentiate themselves from the rest. But as for how long they can continue to hold that edge, that's a huge question mark. Great, Harrison, thank you very much. That was a great explanation of a very complicated topic on a number of levels. I hope we chat to you again soon. Same here. Thanks, Dean. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.